Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving home. So go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Indeed. Indeed makes it easy to connect with your applicants. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. So start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash Peter. Offer good for a limited time. On Friday, Jerome Powell finally delivered his highly anticipated Jackson Hole speech. Although I'm not really sure why you call it a speech when the person delivering the speech is just reading. I mean, they're not actually speaking, so it should be called the reading. When I give a speech, I speak. I don't even have any notes. I don't have an outline. I just talk. But Powell didn't talk. He read. In fact, he didn't even have a teleprompter. He had a stack of papers in his hand, and he barely looked up. Maybe during his eight-minute speech, he looked up a few times at the audience, but most of the time he was looking down at the papers that he was reading from. But eight minutes is all it took to send the Dow Jones down better than 1,000 points by the close. So what did Powell say during that eight minutes? That was so bearish because pretty much almost immediately after Powell started to read, the market started to tank and it fell all day and we closed right on the lows. Now, I don't think Powell really said anything or read anything that he hadn't said before. I think maybe what spooked the markets was how succinct he was and how direct he was and also There was no Q&A following this reading. He just read the speech and walked out the door. So normally when Powell says stuff, you get the Q&A and there's a chance for him to backtrack and not be as hawkish. But here it was just a quick eight-minute reading and out the door. And what he read was actually pretty harsh. Maybe it was a wake-up call for a lot of people that expected the Fed to back away from its tight monetary policy, especially since the economy is weakening. If it's not already in a recession, because a lot of people are denying that, the data is weak. In fact, we got a lot more weak data this week, earlier in the week particularly. Last week, we got some positive data. And as I said on the podcast last week, I thought that was the outlier. And it was because this week it was back to much worse than expected economic data. But Powell didn't seem to care about that data. What he read was how committed the Fed was to fighting inflation and that to do so, they were prepared to go beyond neutral and to stay tight for an appropriate period of time. Powell also downplayed the better than expected inflation data from last month by saying that one month of lower inflation is not enough. We need a lot more evidence. When Powell read about what the Fed was going to do with their tools, Powell read that we are going to use the tools forcefully, right? We're not going to be gentle with these tools. We are going to be forceful. 
And he said that fighting inflation is going to require a sustained period of below trend growth and softening in the labor markets. But I think in particular, Powell referred to pain. He said that fighting inflation is going to require some pain for both households and businesses. And he said that unfortunately, that is just a consequence of reducing inflation. So that was pretty harsh when you have Powell talking about pain, because in the past, it was all about a soft landing. And a soft landing is not supposed to be painful. That's the whole idea behind a soft landing. How can softness be painful? But when Powell is now saying that fighting inflation is going to require pain, he is implying it's a hard landing because that's the kind of landing that is painful. He also talked about how they are moving their policy purposely towards restrictive, meaning they're not going to stop at neutral. The Fed is acknowledging that it's restrictive monetary policy that is required to bring inflation back down to 2%. He also reiterated that it will be appropriate to have another large increase in rates in September, opening up the possibility more strongly to another 75 basis point hike in a September meeting. And again, Powell is reiterating the Fed's commitment to being restrictive for some time. And that what Powell was worried about was to prematurely ease. That's the thing that Powell says the Fed doesn't want to do. The Fed wants to make sure that inflation is back down to 2%. It doesn't want to take any chances and ease prematurely. Now, this is really the opposite of the position that the Fed took before COVID. Because if you remember, back then, Powell was saying that what the Fed didn't want to do was raise rates too quickly to fight inflation and risk hurting the economy. What Powell said is we want to make sure that inflation is higher before we act. We're not going to be preemptive, which is what central banks have done historically. They always want to preempt inflation. You never want to let the genie out of the bottle. So if it looks like the genie might be getting ready to come out of that bottle, you want to act preemptively. Well, what Powell said is he didn't want to do that because he didn't want to risk hurting the economy by preemptively fighting inflation even if the inflation threat never actually materializes. What Powell said in a break from tradition was we're going to let the genie out of the bottle and then we'll put it back in because we don't want to try to stop the genie from coming out of the bottle because maybe it's not going to come out. So we want to make sure that the inflation genie is out of the bottle and then we'll stuff her back in because we don't want to hurt the economy trying to prevent the genie from getting out of the bottle when we have no idea if she's actually going to get out. Now, at the time, I said that that was a horrible policy mistake because there is a reason that you don't want to let the genie out of the bottle. It's because it is so difficult to get it back in. That's why it's worth the pain to prevent her from getting out in the first place because you have much more excruciating pain trying to put her back in. And even though Powell acknowledged that there's going to be pain. I still think he is sugarcoating how excruciating the pain is going to be. And I still believe that the Fed is going to pivot, even though the odds of that pivot now are being pushed back by the markets, given the commitment that the Fed has to fighting inflation and making sure 
that whatever success that they have sticks. So the Fed wants to bring inflation back down to 2%, but then make sure it stays at 2% before easing up on policy. But I believe that this commitment, again, is not as sincere as Powell claims because the pain that he is willing to accept is much less pain than is actually going to be delivered if the Fed is going to keep its commitment to trying to get inflation anywhere near 2%. Because I don't think Powell is prepared for the type of pain that would actually result. Maybe he thinks it's some garden variety. Okay, it's a little painful. The unemployment rate's gonna creep up a bit. The growth is gonna be a little bit below trend. So there's gonna be a little pain there. The pain that would actually be inflicted would be a massive recession of historic proportion that might even be considered a depression, a much worse financial crisis than the financial crisis of 2008. Is the Fed really willing to endure that kind of pain? They weren't willing to endure the pain in 2020 because of COVID. The pain that they would have to allow the economy to endure to successfully return inflation to 2% would be much greater than the pain that we felt back then. And if that pain was too much for the Fed to bear and the Fed intervened, why would they not do the same thing again? Is this Fed really so committed to fighting inflation and bringing it down to 2% that it doesn't care what happens? I don't believe so. I think the only reason the Fed is claiming that it's committed to this goal is because it believes it can achieve the goal with a minimal amount of pain. And of course, I think the Fed can't admit to what its pain tolerance is because it can't show its hand. And again, as I've said many times, when you have no stick, you have to speak loudly. And that is exactly what Powell is doing. Powell has to talk tough about fighting inflation because he can't act tough, but he can't let the markets know that he can't act tough because that would create an even bigger crisis. So this is all bluff but eventually the markets are going to call that bluff. Because even though Powell claims the Fed is committed to restrictive monetary policy, in order for monetary policy to be restrictive, you're going to have to have an interest rate above the inflation rate. And despite these 75 basis point hikes, we're not even close to the inflation rate, let alone above it. And the Fed will never get above the inflation rate. We also have to see a much greater reduction in the balance sheet. And that's not going to happen. I mean, we're getting very small reductions, but I don't even think the Fed can keep up that pace for long before it has to reverse course and start expanding its balance sheet once again. And of course, Powell continued to absolve the Federal Reserve from any responsibility in having created all this inflation in the first place. Powell did not acknowledge in his eight-minute reading that the Federal Reserve bore any responsibility for the inflation that we are now experiencing. In fact, what Powell blamed the inflation on was strong demand and low supply, as if the Federal Reserve's monetary policy had no impact on that strong demand, as if that strong demand was just created on its own and the Fed had nothing to do with it. And of course, the fact that we have low supply in part is the result of lockdowns during COVID, which of course were caused not so much by COVID, but by the government policy 
that caused people to shut down and lock down as a result of COVID. But the reason we have low supply, too, is because we have too much demand. We have lots of demand for stuff that wasn't produced. So it's really a demand problem because had it not been for the Federal Reserve's policies to stimulate demand, demand would have gone down along with supply and the market would have been in balance. The reason that supply went down but demand went up instead was because of the combination of fiscal and monetary policy. But again, Powell accepts no blame on the part of the Fed for stoking that demand, nor does it accuse the U.S. government of contributing to that problem. Instead, Powell just wants to blame inflation on some kind of fluke confluence of events having absolutely nothing to do with monetary or fiscal policy. Ironically, though, while Powell claims to be committed to fighting inflation by cooling demand with his rate hikes, you have the Biden administration making the opposite promise. Biden wants to fan the flames of inflation by stimulating demand through both extending the moratorium on repayments of student loans and outright forgiving portions of those loans. First of all, everything Joe Biden is doing He is doing through executive order. Nothing is passing Congress. This entire thing is unconstitutional. The president does not have the authority to forgive student loans just based on an executive order. In fact, last year, even Nancy Pelosi acknowledged this obvious fact, but it's not preventing Biden from doing it anyway. Now, what Biden is claiming authorizes this is the fact that there's an emergency, that there's this COVID emergency. And because the economy is in such dire straits because of this emergency, that the president is able to do this to help provide some relief during this COVID emergency, except the emergency is over. I mean, as far as Biden is concerned, we have a great economy. We have the best economy in the world. It's very resilient. We've created all the jobs. How is it both a dire emergency that allows for this executive order, yet everything is great. In fact, to say that most people who are going to be getting relief from student loan forgiveness were suffering from COVID isn't even true because a lot of people benefited from COVID, especially some of the people who are being targeted to benefit from student loan debt forgiveness. Because remember, a lot of people who did not work during COVID got paid double or triple what they used to make when they had a job. For a lot of people, COVID was a huge windfall. And Biden himself admits that all the jobs that were lost during COVID have been restored. And so if all the people who want jobs have them, and if the people who weren't working during COVID actually made more money not working than they did when they had jobs, how were they hurt? And of course, a lot of these people had other relief. They didn't have to pay their rent. In fact, they didn't even have to make payments on their student loans, and they're still not making payments. So a lot of people were helped, not hurt by COVID, and therefore it is completely disingenuous for Biden to, on the one hand, claim he's done a great job and the economy is great. On the other hand, saying everything is so bad that I have this emergency power to act to provide this relief that is so desperately needed given how horrible everything is because of COVID. 
The most important thing you can do for your family is to make sure that their financial needs are taken care of if you're not there to do it yourself. But unfortunately, a lot of people who buy life insurance make the mistake of buying whole life. But you really don't need insurance for the whole of life. You only need life insurance during those years that other people are dependent on you financially. And with term life insurance, you can purchase the largest death benefit with the smallest monthly premium, freeing up money to make higher yielding investments than what might otherwise be available inside a whole life policy. Term life insurance allows you to separate your insurance from your investments, maximizing the returns on both. That's where Ladder comes in. Ladder is 100% digital when you apply for up to $3 million in coverage or less. There are no doctors, no needles, and no paperwork. To apply, you just need a phone or a laptop and a few spare minutes. Ladder smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you've been approved. There are no hidden fees, and you can cancel anytime. And if you change your mind in the first 30 days, you get a full refund. Ladder's policies are are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. And since life insurance costs more as you get older, now's the best time to cross it off your list. So go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. That's ladderlife, L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash gold to see if you're instantly approved. Now, first of all, I want to get into some of the details about what exactly Biden is doing with student loans. So first of all, one of the things that he did is he extended the moratorium where you don't have to make any payments at all on your student loans and you don't incur any late fees or interest while you're not making these payments. That was set to expire in September and now it's going to go through the end of the year. Now remember, I predicted that this was going to happen. I said on an earlier podcast that I didn't think the Democrats were going to allow this moratorium to expire before the midterm elections. They wanted to make sure their voters were going to be able to go to the polls not having to make any payments on their student loans. And as I said, they've now kicked this can down the road and it's not going to expire until the end of the year. Of course, who knows what kind of excuse they may make in December to postpone it again. After all, it's Christmas time. It's not really a good time to hit people with student loan payments. Maybe we should postpone it a little bit. They always come up with excuses to postpone something because right now, the fact that people don't have to pay their student loans, this is a massive support for a lot of people. Imagine how much worse it would be for a lot of people who are struggling with higher prices if they also had to make payments on their student loans. But because they're freed from that obligation, they have more money to spend on other things, which is why this is inflationary, because not having to make student loan payments increases your ability to buy other things. So demand is higher in the economy because borrowers don't have to make their loan payments. That extra money is available to buy energy, to buy food, to pay rent, pushing up those prices. Any economist who claims that this is not inflationary doesn't know anything about economics or inflation. Of course, this is inflationary. It's just like a tax cut. Money that was supposed to go to the government is not. You don't cut taxes if you're trying to fight inflation. If anything, you'd be raising taxes. I mean, better to cut government spending, but there are no cuts in government spending. All they're doing is allowing more money to stay in the hands of the public, and the public is going to take that money and bid up prices. But in addition to suspending this moratorium, there is outright forgiveness of loans. If you have any federal loan, 
It's an automatic $10,000 knocked off your loan principal. It's forgiven and it's tax-free. If you got a Pell Grant, which means you had even greater need, you're gonna have $20,000 worth of debt forgiveness. Now, it doesn't apply to everybody. You have to have income of $125,000 or less if you are single or $250,000 or less if you're married. Now, clearly, that's going to cover almost everybody with student loans. Yeah, there's a small percentage of people who make over $125,000 a year, but the vast majority of people with loans are going to qualify for this relief. And by the way, it doesn't include private loans. This is just federal loans. But Private loans are only about 8% of all the student loans out there. So 92% are federal loans. You have better than 42 million Americans who have these loans, and they're all going to have either 10,000 or 20,000 forgiven. These people are going to vote Democrat. They're going to vote for the party that has delivered them this windfall. This is an outright bribe to voters going into the midterms. You see what happens when you vote for Democrats, you get all these freebies. You're going to have your debt payments reduced. And again, this is inflationary because the money that these debtors are no longer going to pay to the government, they're now going to go out and spend it. And how is the government going to make up for this loss of revenue? Well, the Fed is going to be printing more money. So it is very inflationary what Biden has done. But even more important than the inflation is the moral hazard that has been created. Because yes, this debt forgiveness doesn't apply to debt that you take on in the future. You have to already have the debt right now for it to be forgiven. So somebody who's starting college today and is just going to accumulate debt, they're not getting anything forgiven. But the problem is they're going to expect it. This is now something that everybody is going to expect. If they forgive debt once, they'll forgive it again. So I think a lot of people are going to know from the beginning, sure, this is a lot of debt, but I don't mind taking it on because portions of it and maybe all of it will eventually be forgiven. This is now like an entitlement. People who take on debt are going to feel entitled to have some of it forgiven. And that means they're willing to take on more debt. You see, one reason that people don't want to take on a lot of debt is because they don't want to have to pay it back. But if they know they don't have to pay it back, then they're willing to take on more debt. Now, the colleges, they're not a bunch of idiots. They know that they can raise prices even more if the students could borrow money without any worries about having to pay it back. So all of this is going to end up pushing college tuitions up even faster. So whenever the government is trying to figure out what the cost of this is going to be, they are grossly underestimating that because they don't understand the moral hazard. Because of this, students are going to end up borrowing a lot more money. Colleges are going to end up charging a lot more money. And so there's going to be a lot more debt and a lot more of it is going to be forgiven. And it's going to end up costing a lot more money than they think. But I think the biggest problem with this is getting the least amount of attention. And that is the changes that Biden has made to the income-based loan repayments. First of all, he makes it much easier to qualify and to get this thing set up. So pretty much everybody as a result of this is going to set up their student loans for an income-based repayment. But the most significant change is the modification in the way repayment is going to work. So prior to Biden's changes, the way it worked 
is that they took your income that was above 150% of the official federal poverty rate and anything below 150% didn't count as your income. But what you earned above 150%, you had to pay no more than 10% of that in your student loan payments. And after 20 years of making your payments as required under the plan, if there was anything left over in unpaid amount, it was forgiven. The change that Biden has made is now it's 250% of the poverty rate. So you can have a much higher income that is exempt from the calculation. So it's only the excess above 250% of the poverty rate that you have to base the repayment on. And the maximum is now 5% of what you earn. And they forgive the remaining balance after just 10 years, not 20. This is a huge change. First of all, a lot of money is going to end up being exempt. And there's going to be people that are going to make no payments whatsoever on their student loans and then have the entire obligation wiped out after 10 years. For example, for a family of four, 250% of the official poverty rate is just over $60,000. And so if you happen to have a student loan and you have a wife and two kids and you only make $60,000 a year, now I grant it, that's probably rare, but you're not gonna have to make any payments. And after 10 years, your entire loan is gonna be completely forgiven. But let's take a look at a more likely scenario, a single person. Because when you graduate from college, you're 22, right, 23, most people are single and they don't have any kids. So if you look at what the official poverty rate is right now for a single person and you multiply it by the 250%, you get $30,578. So in other words, your first $30,578 doesn't count at all towards how much you have to pay in your loan towards the 5%. It's only the excess. So if you get a job and you only make $30,000 a year, you have no payment obligation at all. And after 10 years of earning just $30,000 a year, 100% of your student loans are forgiven. Now, most people who go to college are going to earn more than $30,578. So what I did is I took some scenarios to take a look. Let's say somebody graduates from college and they stay single for the entire 10 years and they average $50,000 a year income during those 10 years. The most they're going to have to repay on their student loan is $9,700. Doesn't matter how much they borrow, that's the most they have to repay. And that includes any interest. Now, if somebody earns $75,000 a year, well, the most they're going to have to repay is $22,211. And if you earn $100,000 a year, the most you're going to have to pay is $34,711. Again, it doesn't matter how much you borrow. Now, I took a look at what the maximum amount you can borrow, and pretty much everybody is going to max out, especially given what has just happened. So the maximum amount that you can borrow for an undergraduate degree now, and of course it goes up all the time, and this number is going to go a lot higher because colleges are really going to start jacking up their tuitions even faster because of what Biden has done. But under current law, the most you can borrow 
for an undergraduate degree is 57,500. So that means the borrower who is single for 10 years and earns an average of $50,000, they're only gonna have to pay back 16.9% of that principal and none of the interest. If that same individual averages $75,000 a year over those 10 years, that person only has to pay back 38.6% of the principal and no interest. And even somebody earning $100,000 a year over the next 10 years, they're only gonna have to pay back 60.3% of what they borrowed. Now again, the only reason some people pay for college instead of borrowing is because they don't wanna have to pay the interest. Because if you pay cash for college, you're not responsible for all the interest payments. Well, if you can borrow the money instead, and you only have to pay back 17% of what you borrowed or maybe 60% of what you borrowed, but it's spread out over 10 years, you'd have to be a complete idiot to pay for college. Why? You're gonna get it so much cheaper if you don't pay. Forget about interest. You're not even gonna have to repay your principal. You know, a lot of people are upset now who paid off their student loans and now they're not gonna get any forgiveness there are a lot of people who didn't borrow money, parents saved money and paid for their kids to go to college because they didn't want to saddle them with debt and now they look like complete idiots. It's all the people that took on debt who are being rewarded, it's the people who didn't borrow who are being punished. Again, that is a moral hazard. We are setting up a situation where everybody is gonna borrow and nobody is going to pay. That means the student debt problem is going to get so much bigger as a result of this solution. And that's why I said it's going to cost so much more to solve a problem that A, the government created, but B, they just made much bigger. But where the numbers really are startling are for people who stay in college longer and get a master's degree or a PhD because there you can borrow 138500 Now that includes what you borrowed undergrad. But 138500 that's a lot of money to borrow. Let's say somebody gets a advanced degree and then they graduate and over 10 years, they average $50,000 a year. Now that's not that much money for somebody who has a master's degree or a doctorate, but it's possible you could get a degree in something that really doesn't have a lot of income associated with it. It depends on what you major in. There are degrees that don't generate a lot of market value, even if you have a master's. But let's say somebody gets a graduate degree, borrows the max, 138,500, and why not? You might as well, you're not gonna have to pay the money back. If you only earn 50,000 a year, you're only gonna have to pay back 7% of that 138,500. Think about that for a minute. You borrow $138,500 and your total obligation in repayment is $9,695 and you're paying it off over 10 years. If you earn $75,000 a year on average, you're only gonna have to pay back 16% of that $138,500. And if you earn $100,000 a year, you're only gonna pay back 25% of the 138,500 you borrowed and no interest. Now, obviously this is a huge windfall. In fact, advanced degrees might as well be free. If the government is gonna forgive 75 to 93% 
of what you borrowed, it's basically free, except it's worse than free because the colleges get the money. No, if you look at what teachers earn, and I check that out because a lot of teachers stay in school, they get a master's, they get a PhD. The average teacher, and it can vary depending on where you are, obviously, but teachers make about 45,000 a year with a bachelor's degree. They have a master's degree, maybe they make like 55,000, they get an extra 10,000 for a master's. Maybe if they have a doctorate, they maybe get 80,000 a year. Still, that's not a lot of money, but you can easily borrow $138,500 to get a PhD in education, and then you're gonna have most of that loan forgiven. In fact, here is the irony of the moral hazard. What the Biden administration has done is they're encouraging people who pursue degrees in the lowest paid occupations to borrow the most amount of money. Because if you're going to college to prepare yourself for a job that doesn't have a lot of pay, well, it doesn't matter how much you borrow because you're basically not going to have to pay any of it back or very little of it back. On the other hand, if you study something that's going to prepare you to have a high income, well, then you're going to have to repay your loan. So the people who are going to be doctors or lawyers or engineers or computer programmers, they're going to be more concerned about how much they borrow because they might actually have to pay it back. But if you're going to get a master's degree or a PhD in education or social services or some type of other career that requires a lot of education but doesn't result in a lot of income, well, now you're completely indifferent. It doesn't matter how much money you borrow. You'll borrow the whatever you can because you're not really going to have to pay it back. The fact that you're going to have a low income is irrelevant because if you have a low income, you don't have to pay back your loans. You only have to pay back your loans if you have a high income. So it's only the people who anticipate having high incomes that are going to care about borrowing money and are going to be reluctant to borrow too much. But the people who know that they're going to have low incomes are incentivized to borrow as much as possible. Now, obviously, the colleges will know this. And, you know, so they're probably going to look to recruit people who want to study and get degrees that have very little marketable value after they graduate. Because those are the people who are going to be willing to pay the highest tuition and who are going to have the least objection to those high tuitions because they're just going to borrow money that they know they don't have to repay. And of course, it's not really borrowing because when you borrow something, you do that with the expectation that you're going to have to pay it back. If you know you're not going to pay it back, you're not really borrowing at all. You're just accepting free money. And who's not going to accept free money? And of course, the colleges know that they have all these students who will major in these Mickey Mouse courses and who are going to graduate with basically no more ability to earn a living than probably before they even went to college. But it's not going to matter because none of this money is going to have to be repaid because of this new debt repayment. And another problem is too, when people had to make payments for 20 years and you based the repayment on their income, most people earn more money 10 years after they graduate from college, 15 years, 18 years, because as you've been working more, you're further along in your career, you're making more money, you've had more promotions, you've got better jobs. So the income in the back half of those 20 years is a lot higher than in the front half. But during this current plan, they're only looking at the money you earn in the first 10 years out of college. That is the least amount of money that people are going to earn. 
the first job you have, you're not going to get paid nearly as much as a job you might have 10 years later. In fact, a lot of people who graduate college may not even work at all for the first couple of years. They may take time off. Maybe they just have a part-time job. And so they're going to have to pay nothing on their student loans during those earlier years. So by the time they start working, and again, they're still at the low part of their earnings curve. They're going to earn a lot more 20, 30 years later, but by then their student loans would have already been completely forgiven. Also, these income-based debt repayment plans make the interest on the loans irrelevant. It doesn't matter what the interest rate is because you're not even going to finish paying the principal, let alone any of the interest. So whether the interest rate on the loan is 3%, 5%, 10% or more, none of that matters at all to the borrower. But it's going to matter a lot to the U.S. government and to the taxpayer because the higher the interest rate, the greater the dollar value that ends up being forgiven. Because what's forgiven is not just the unpaid principal, but 100% of the unpaid interest because none of the interest is ever paid. So the higher interest rates rise, the bigger the bill the taxpayer gets stuck with when the principal and interest are forgiven. So this is a massive moral hazard. This is the worst thing that the government could possibly do. The government created the student loan crisis, but for the government, students wouldn't have all these loans. But for the government, college wouldn't be so expensive that you needed these loans. So the government created this problem, and now they're taking the problem that it created and making it 100 times worse. Plus, there's another moral hazard here, and that's that you're going to increase the chances that people will cheat on their taxes and underreport their incomes because now they have a greater financial incentive to do that. Because it's not just that by not reporting some of your income, you lower your income tax obligation, but you also get the added benefit of reducing your student loan payments. So this creates a greater financial incentive to cheat on your taxes, and therefore more people will. Now, maybe it's not a coincidence that at the same time they're doing this, they're hiring 87,000 more IRS agents because they want to go after middle-income and lower-income workers that now have a greater incentive to cheat on their taxes because not only do they save on their taxes, but on their student loan repayments. Your business is your dream. That's why you want to hire people who share that dream, but who also have the skills to make that dream a reality. And you can find them faster with Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Why spend countless hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills when you can partner with Indeed and they can help you do it all? Indeed can help you find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed's Instant Match assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job descriptions the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. Even better, Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applicants who meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all the other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. So join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide 
who already use Indeed to hire great talent fast. One of the best parts of Indeed is how it allows you to consolidate all your hiring into just one place. Plus, Indeed assessments helps take the stress out of the interviewing process. Your candidates get to prove themselves before the interview so you can dive deeper into talking about what's important to you. Plus, Indeed allows your star applicants to really shine with over 135 assessment tests from cooking to coding. Indeed assessments allow you to select for the skills that matter most to you and can even open up a window to let you see how your candidates will perform on the job. So start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. This offer is good for a limited time. So claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com Peter. That's Indeed.com Peter. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Now there's one little wrinkle in having the unpaid balance forgiven at the end of 10 years. And that is under current law, any amount that is forgiven as a result of the income-based repayments is taxable income in the year it's forgiven. So for example, if a teacher is making payments for 10 years on a $138,500 loan, and at the end of those 10 years, she still owes $100,000, and that entire $100,000 is forgiven, that $100,000 is also counted as taxable income during that year, which could generate, let's say, a $30,000 tax obligation. Obviously, that teacher probably doesn't have $30,000 in her checking account to make that tax payment, so that's a problem. Now, the way the government has solved that problem now is that until 2025, that amount of debt forgiveness is 100% tax-free. But after 2025, it's 100% taxable. Now, obviously, what is going to happen is before the expiration of that benefit in 2025, Congress is going to vote or just a president by executive order is going to postpone that to some later date because obviously they're not going to hit people with these tax bills. So what they're going to do is extend that date beyond 2025. Now, why don't they just drop the pretense and just say it doesn't matter? Just make it that whatever amount is forgiven in a student loan is tax-free and not have to keep extending the deadline. Maybe that's because they don't want to factor this into their budget. They want to pretend that they're going to get this money back, even though they know they're not. So they want to have some kind of sunset date on this benefit but obviously no one's ever going to let the sun set. It's going to be sunshine forever because it's another entitlement that nobody wants to vote to take away. I want to circle back though and talk about some of the economic data that came out during the week that may have raised some false hopes that Powell might have tempered his hawkishness and maybe been a little bit more dovish at Jackson Hole. Of course, when he finally read his speech at Jackson Hole, he pulled the rug out from under those expectations, which is why the bottom dropped out of the market. But first of all, we got July existing home sales, which fell for the eighth month out of nine. And in fact, year over year, sales are down 22.5%. That is the biggest year over year decline since April of 2011. The index is now at 89.8. That is the lowest the index has been since October 
of 2011. If you exclude the one-off spike in early 2020, that was strictly related to the COVID lockdown. So the housing market is clearly in a recession. In fact, July new home sales collapsed by 12.6%. That was a much bigger decline than they had been expecting. And the year-over-year collapse in new home sales is 29.6%. New home sales are now down for six out of the past seven months, and they stand at the lowest level since January of 2016. And probably more important, if you look at the supply of new homes that are on the market It's the most since March of 2009. Now, where were we in March of 2009? That was the bottom of the bear market. The S&P 500 was down 48% from its high in March of 2009. We had just finished the great financial crisis and we were in the middle of the worst recession since the Great Depression. You have to go back to that point in time to find a situation where you had more unsold new homes on the market. Now, why are these homes sitting on the market unsold? Because people can't afford them. They are too expensive. It costs too much to build them, and now it costs far too much to borrow the money to buy them. That's why I've been saying for a while that I think the new home market is going to completely implode, that to the extent that people buy homes, they're going to buy existing homes. And that's because the price of those homes is going to be lower because they don't have to be built. They're already here. But what I think is going to happen is a lot of these homes are going to be selling for less than the cost to replace them because people can't afford to replace them. They can only buy what's already here. But the ramifications for the economy are severe because homes that already exist don't have to be built. New homes require workers to build them. So there's a lot of economic activity and jobs that are associated with building new homes. You don't have nearly as many jobs associated with selling the homes that have already been built. So this has ramifications for the economy, for the employment. All of this data is weak and is consistent with not just a housing recession, but a recession in general. And by the way, not only are new home sales starting to fall, but prices are starting to fall as well. And prices are going to fall further for these homes because people can't afford to buy them where interest rates are now. And if the Federal Reserve continues to raise rates as they intend to do, homes that are unaffordable now will be even more unaffordable later. The only thing that could make them affordable is a drop in price. But because new home prices are going to drop, builders are going to stop building them because they're not going to be able to build homes and sell them for a profit. That's why this industry is going into a severe recession and there's going to be widespread job losses for anybody who works in the housing industry. But I think by far the weakest data point that we got on the week was the August read on the PMI flash composite index which was expected to improve from July. July, the composite index was at 47.7. The expectation was for a rise to 49.2. Instead, the index collapsed all the way down to 45. 
That is way below the low end of the range of expectations, which was at 49. In fact, 45 is a lower PMI than any European nation that has reported PMI. In fact, I think it's lower than any nation in the world. How can the U.S. economy be the strongest in the world, which is what President Biden continues to claim if we have the lowest PMI in the world? In fact, if you look at the breakdown, the manufacturing PMI went down from 52.2 in July to 51.3 in August. That is the lowest it's been since July of 2020. But the service sector is the weakest. The expectation was for a rise from 47.3 in July to 49 in August. Instead, the index collapsed all the way down to 44.1. That is way below the low end of the consensus, which went from 48 up to 50. In fact, this is the lowest the services PMI has been since May of 2020. Now, what was going on in May of 2020? Well, we were in complete COVID lockdown. That's when nobody was going out to restaurants. Nobody was traveling. Yet you have to go all the way back to the depths of the COVID lockdown to find a weaker service sector than the one that we've got right now. Now, how can we be in the middle of this rip-roaring, booming economy if the service sector is as weak now as it was during the depths of the COVID lockdown? Obviously, we can't. We have a weak economy. We have an economy that is in recession and everybody is in denial. Nobody wants to admit that the economy is in recession, and nobody wants to admit that the Federal Reserve continues to raise interest rates despite the fact that the economy is already in a recession, ensuring that that recession gets much worse. In fact, take a look at the personal income and spending numbers for July. The expectation was for a 0.6% rise in incomes that would have matched the 0.6% rise in the prior month, which by the way, was revised up slightly to up 0.7. But July came out at up just 0.2, one third of expectations. In fact, below the low range of expectations, which went from up 0.3 to up 1.0. That is the lowest gain in personal income since January of 2020. But spending actually came out weaker. The expectation was for a rise of 0.4, and that would have followed a rise of 1.1 from the prior month. Now, that was actually revised down slightly to up 1%, but the gain in July came out at just 0.1%, one-fourth of what had been expected. And again, below the low range of estimates, which went from up 0.2 to up 1.1%. This was the smallest rise in personal spending since December of 2021. Now, again, I'm sure that if you adjusted for the actual rate of inflation, these numbers would be even weaker. Now, the government claimed that prices actually fell by 0.1% during the month. And if you exclude food and energy, the government claims there was a rise of just 0.1, which, of course, would negate the entire increase in spending. But I think that the government is underestimating how much prices are rising. And so real consumer spending is actually falling more. 
But the most significant part was the savings rate, which went down to 5% even. That is the lowest savings rate since August of 2009. Now, again, we were in the Great Recession in August of 2009. Americans had experienced a collapse in housing prices and a financial crisis. And that's the last time the savings rate was so low. If we really had this great economy, if all the people who wanted jobs had jobs and we created so many jobs, why is the savings rate so low? Why are so many Americans forced to tap into their savings if they've got these great jobs in a good economy? They don't and it's not. The reason that Americans are tapping into their savings is because they need to because they can't get by on their incomes. In fact, not only are they tapping into their savings, but a lot of Americans are completely tapped out when it comes to savings and they are relying completely on debt. That's why credit card debt is through the roof as the economy is going through the floor. In fact, even the July trade deficit that came out better than expected in that the deficit was lower than expected, which is a good thing, but it went down for the wrong reason. The expectation was for a $97.5 billion deficit in goods during the month of July. That would have followed a 98.2% deficit in the prior month. Now, that deficit was actually revised up to 98.6, but the July deficit came out well below expectations at just 89.1 billion. Now I say just 89.1 billion, not too many months ago, that would have been an all-time record high. But relative to some of the enormous prints that we've had, it's a little bit of a relief. In fact, it's below the low range of expectations, which went from a high of 101.3 to a low of 96. But the reason we had an improvement in the goods trade deficit was because imports collapsed by 3.5%. That is a big drop. Exports also dropped, but just by 0.2%. But the fact that both imports and exports went down shows weakness. And why is it that Americans are buying less stuff? Well, because they have less incomes after inflation to afford stuff. So Americans are cutting back both because of inflation and recession. Of course, Americans spending less on imports could help to improve the GDP by shrinking the trade deficit. And by the way, we did get a slight upward revision to second quarter GDP, which was originally reported as minus 0.9. The government now claims that the economy only contracted 0.6 during the second quarter. And that's because they now claim that personal consumption expenditures went up by 1.5% instead of the previously reported 1%, but still a negative handle. And that still means that we're in recession, despite the fact that so many people want to deny it. And just taking a look at a few more data points that came out weak and weaker than expected on the week, the Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index was supposed to come in at minus three, Instead, it came in at minus eight. Durable goods orders for the month of July was supposed to rise by 0.5. Instead, it came out at flat. And the Kansas City Fed Manufacturing Index, which was at 13 the prior month, dropped to three in August. 
Also, Gallup released the results of their Life Evaluation Index, which seeks to measure the quality of life by polling Americans and asking them if they are thriving, struggling, or suffering. And the poll revealed that 5.6% of Americans claim to be suffering. That is the highest percentage of people suffering since the index's inception during the Great Recession of 2008. Separately, I also read an article that one-sixth of Americans are now delinquent in their power bills and risk having their power shut off because they can't afford to pay those bills. Clearly, these are signs of an economy already in recession and that that recession is going to get much worse and that the pain that Powell was referring to is going to be far more excruciating than he's willing to admit. But I want to wrap up today's podcast by moving from the economic data to the market data. I acknowledged at the beginning of the podcast that the Dow Jones fell 1,008 points. That's a 3% decline, closing pretty much on the low, which was true for all the major market indexes. Very weak technical sign. I know I'm going to get flack from my son, Spencer, for talking about the possibility of a Black Monday, which I do whenever there is a major stock market decline on a Friday, especially when we close on the lows. That always opens up the possibility to a major decline on a Monday. We historically have had the biggest market crashes on Mondays. Is it probable that we're going to have a crash on Monday? No. But is it possible? Everything's a possibility. But I think especially when you have a market as overvalued as the one that we have, and we just came off of a big bear market rally, I think you increase the probability that we may have that type of event, especially when the fundamentals are so horrible. And by the way, on my last podcast, I did state that I believed that the bear market rally had ended, and so far, that prediction looks like it's prescient. In fact, the Dow Jones was down 4.2% on the week. The S&P was even weaker than the Dow on Friday. It dropped by 3.4%, although on the week, its gains were a little bit lower at 4.1%. Russell 2000 down 3.3% on the day, only 3% on the week, meaning that until Friday, the Russell 2000 was actually the only U.S. stock market index that was positive on the week. The weakest index was the NASDAQ. The tech stocks getting hit pretty hard, down 4.1% on the day and 4.8% on the week. Of course, if you look at the most speculative Tech stocks, the ones that really don't have any earnings, like the ones that Kathy Wood has loaded up on in the ARK Innovation Fund, that fund was down 6.4% on the day. Although all the losses on the week happening on Friday, because going into Friday, the index was actually positive because the entire drop on the week was just 4.6%, so a little bit better than the NASDAQ overall. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust following Bitcoin down, it dropped 5.5% on the day and has closed out the week again at a 30% discount to NAV. But all of the losses happened on Friday because going into the week, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, like Bitcoin itself, was up, but Bitcoin got killed. In fact, as I am recording this podcast, we have just moved back above 20,000. We fell below 20,000 
while I was recording the podcast, we got below 19,800. So we are lower now on a Saturday afternoon than we were at any point on Friday. Precious metals also headed lower on the day. Gold dropped just under $20 an ounce, down 1.2%. It settled out the week at 1739 per ounce, but it was only down 0.6% on the week. So on a relative basis, Held up pretty well. Silver also held up relatively well, down 2.1% on the day, but just 1% on the week, settled at $18.91. And gold stocks also held up pretty well on the week. They were down sharply on the day. The GDX was down 4.7%, but on the week, down just 1.4%. GDXJ down 5.1% on the day, but just one and a quarter percent on the week, meaning that going into Friday, gold stocks had some pretty big gains, which they surrendered on Friday, but still on the week, gold stocks did a lot better than the Dow and the NASDAQ. And in fact, gold stocks didn't close on the lows. They were close to the lows, but they managed to rally back a bit during the final hour. They didn't go into meltdown mode like the rest of the market. So this could again be indicative of some type of bottom. Maybe we're going to get a decoupling here of gold and silver and the mining stocks from the overall market because what the Federal Reserve is doing is bearish for stocks and the economy, but it's actually bullish for gold because they're not going to put out the inflation fire. It's actually going to burn hotter. What they're going to do is prick the bubble in the economy and the air is going to come out, but we're going to have a lot more inflation than the markets think. And that is bullish, not bearish for gold. It's also bearish for the dollar, which finished the week positive. The dollar index rose to 108 spot 38 from 108 spot 17. It wasn't a big gain on the week, although intraweek, the dollar index got as high as 109 spot 27. That was two ticks off the 109 spot 29 high. And as I've been saying, about 109 is resistance, 105 is support. So we potentially could have a double top if the dollar can't make a new high. And if it couldn't make a new high, on the PAL comments, then maybe it's not going to make a new high. And the next stop is to retest the support at 105. If we break below that support convincingly, then I'm convinced that the high is in for the dollar. Now, if we can close above that 109.29 high, well, that means that the dollar index is likely headed a bit higher before it ultimately reverses, but ultimately it will reverse. Oil was actually up $3 on the week, approximately closing at $93 a barrel. So while the overall markets were weak, the crude oil market was strong. Also, bond yields continued to rise. But the more important factor is look at what is happening with the yield curve. In fact, all of the maturities from six months forward are now above 3%. But if you look at the yield on a six-month T-bill, it's 3.21%. That is higher than the yield on a 10-year Treasury, which is 3.035%. And it is higher than the yield on a 30-year, which is 3.2%. Now, if you look at the one-year yield, it's 3.29%. And the two-year yield, which is the highest yield on the curve, is 3.4%. So you have an upward slope up to two years and then we come down because the five year is at 3.21 but even if you compare 
The six-month Treasury bill yield, it is higher than the 10-year Treasury. It is higher than a 30-year Treasury. We have an inverted yield curve, really, from the two-year moving forward down to the 30. And that is highly indicative of an economy that is either already in recession or rapidly heading towards recession. And it's also indicative that bond market investors are completely clueless as to the reality of inflation. Investors expect the Fed to succeed in bringing inflation back down to 2% when in reality they will fail abysmally 